please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Uh, the uh, passage this morning that we're going to be considering is Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 20. We're going to read it together uh, before I get too far into this. Uh, but just before we read it, just want to remind you that uh, this is in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 20, the culmination, the uh, pinnacle of God's redemptive narrative throughout the history of the world up to this point. Now, of course, we will look forward later into uh, the life of the Lord Jesus and the cross of the Lord Jesus, and those are extremely important as well. But up to this point, in world history, certainly in biblical history, this is the pinnacle, the central point, the culmination of God's redemptive narrative, the sending of the Savior. In fact, our uh, calendars are divided at this point, are they? aren't they? B.C. and A.D. Our world calendar is divided in this point, this way, on the basis of this one, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I remind you of that as we read this. It is a common story. It is something that perhaps you've heard many, many times um, in many different formats, like Christmas programs and Christmas plays. You've seen, I'm sure, some of these verses on billboards, signs, uh, church marquees, and all the like. Uh, Let's not grow too accustomed to it forgetting the significance of it, this is the culmination of God's redemptive narrative up to this point in history. And so it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Up to this point in world history, certainly as we follow the biblical narrative, this is the culmination. This is the pinnacle of it as the Savior is sent into the world. We may anticipate many different things in life. We do, don't we? We anticipate things like birthdays, anniversaries, maybe the birth of a child, first day on a job, uh, maybe a wedding is the biggest thing that many of us anticipate in a life, that wedding day. We anticipate many things. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there is no anticipation like the anticipation for this event this day. Think about this for a moment. It was some uh, nine months prior that the angel appeared to Mary and gave her the news that she would be the one to bring the Savior into the world. Nine months of anticipation. It was a few months prior to that, as we learned a few weeks ago when Jamel was speaking, that the angel appeared to Zacharias and gave him the news that he and Elizabeth Though barren, though unable to have a child, would have a child. That child would be John the Baptist, and he would be the messenger, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Months and months of anticipation. But many of you know that the anticipation of this event did not just go back a few months, or even several months or a few years. But think about this for a moment. If you were to go back to the last prophet of the Old Testament, and I'm not going to turn to all of these, but I am going to read them to you. Feel free to jot down the references. But if you were to go back, not six months, nine months, or 12 months, but 450 years, you would hear the prophet Malachi saying this, Behold, I send my messenger. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. He is coming. 450 years prior to this event, Malachi, you would hear him saying, Behold, he is coming. 450 years of anticipation. But many of you know that this goes back beyond that. If you were to go back another hundred years, you would find another prophet named Daniel. And he would speak in Daniel chapter 7, speaking of one who would be coming, one like the Son of Man, a title given to the Messiah. 550 years approximately prior to this day in Luke chapter 2. Talk about anticipation. You know, as children, uh, as young kids, uh, when I was a child and young kids, we have a hard time anticipating Christmas and just holding out for that event. Oh boy, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But how about this? 550 years? Yeah, 550 years if you go back to Daniel. But you could go back beyond that. 150 years prior to the prophet Daniel, in about 700 to 800 B.C., there were two prophets who spoke distinctly of the coming of the Messiah. Seven to eight hundred years prior to this event in Luke chapter 2, you would read or hear speaking the prophets Micah 
and Isaiah. And we heard about it a little bit in song this this morning. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And then perhaps no one spoke about this one, prophesied about this one, as distinctly and as much as the prophet Isaiah. And I could give you multiple references. I'm going to give you just a few. The, the, some of the familiar ones, like Isaiah chapter 7. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Who is this one? We just sang this. Who is this one? What child is this who's coming? 800 years before, and God was already speaking about this one? The virgin will be with child. You shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah would say in chapter 9 and verse 6. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 42, 1, the prophet would say as if God was speaking, Behold, my servant. Behold means to look, to see. My servant, he's coming. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Isaiah 49 would say this. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. To him whom man despises, who is this one? To him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. Who is this one who is coming? 800 years of anticipation? can hardly go to the book of Isaiah, to the prophecies of Isaiah, without considering Isaiah 53. Who is this one? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He is despised and rejected by man. And I'm going to skip a few of the verses just so you know, because you're going to say, ah, that doesn't sound right. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Indeed, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. 800 years prior to this event, the prophet Isaiah proclaiming to the world by the Spirit of God that there was someone coming, the Messiah would come, who would justify many, who would bear the iniquities of the people. But it goes back beyond that. If you were to go back another 300 years, you would come to the psalmist who wrote all throughout the Psalms, mainly David, but others as well. And the psalmist would say in Psalm 132, speak of the horn of David, the one who would grow and who would flourish. Psalm 118 would speak of the stone which the builders disallowed, the same one who has become the chief cornerstone. Who is this one? A thousand or eleven hundred years of anticipation? That's right. The one who would sit at the right hand of God Almighty, Psalm 110 will tell us, with his enemies as his footstool. A thousand, eleven hundred years of anticipation. The one who would be made the firstborn, Psalm 89, the highest of the kings of the earth. The one who the psalmist would say in Psalm chapter 2, the heathen, 
the nations take counsel. Oh, this is pointed, brothers and sisters. Take counsel. They make an alliance against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is this one who's coming? The anointed one. Behold my servant, the one who would bear the iniquities of the people. But the picture goes back even beyond that, beyond the time of the Psalms, about a thousand BC, beyond that, back to even the book of Exodus. There is one pictured in the slain lamb of sacrifice in Egypt, that Passover lamb. There is one pictured in the separated sea of salvation as the Israelites fled from the Egyptians. There one was pictured in the shining and shading pillar of security as they wandered the wilderness. There was one pictured in the smitten rock of satisfaction at Horeb, that rock that brought forth satisfaction, water to the people there. There was one pictured in the supplied bread of sustenance in the wilderness. The anticipation went back all the way to the book of Exodus, 1,700 years of anticipation, of expectation. But many of you recognize that it goes back beyond this. If you were to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12, you would be introduced to a man named Abraham, and the Spirit of God has recorded to us a promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3, that in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Some 2,000 years prior to the arrival of the Messiah. And lastly, don't be wearied but you could go back even further than that. If you go back all the way to the very first scene in the history of mankind, you're introduced, as I'm sure everyone knows, to a couple named Adam and Eve, a couple that had sinned and broken God's commandments. They had broken their fellowship with God. And there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the word of God records the words of God in saying to the serpent, that wicked serpent, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Perhaps some four or six, I don't know exactly how many, but more than 4,000 years of anticipation, of suspense, of expectation. Galatians 4 and verse 4 puts it this way. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. There are many things that we could take from this uh, thought of anticipation of suspense. One of the things that I want to remind you is that God, our God, the God of the Bible, is not a God impressed with speed. But he does thing in his own, things in his own time. Silence, or what we may see as silence, is not slumber, but God is working. Remember that the Lord Jesus made a promise again. The Lord Jesus said when he was here on earth, I will come again. Now that was 2,000 years ago. Have you given up hope on that promise? 
Have you lost hope in the words of, of the Lord Jesus? Because 2,000 years have passed. You know what Second Peter 3 tells us? That some will come in the last days and they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? Since the prophet spoke, it's as if nothing's happened. Where is he? Where is he? But he said, I will come again. Don't forget this, that our eternal God exists outside of time. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is indeed long-suffering. Long-suffering. Maybe to one of you here today, he's waiting, suffering long in order that many would come to repentance. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Don't forget this, Second Peter 3 says, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That doesn't mean that God counts one day as a thousand years, or counts a thousand years as one day. It's just basically saying God is outside of time. Outside of time. He's working things according to the counsel of His own will. And so, time itself marches lockstep with the divine will of God. Do you believe that? The history around us, when you look around and you see world leaders rising and falling, does it hit you that God is is behind all of this? That the sovereign God is ruling and reigning? That God is bringing about His purposes? He is. Apparent silence is not slumber on the part of God. He's not sleeping. He's working. And that's going to be borne out in this passage this morning. And so Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Just looking at this first verse, there are two main things that I want to point out. Number one is that Luke, the historian, is telling a true record of history. He is not stating a once upon a time or in a land far, far away or anything like that. He's recording for us real historical events. In fact, when we look back at Luke chapter 1, we won't go back there at the moment, but the very beginning, Luke assures us that his intent is to provide an orderly account of the things concerning this Messiah, the sent one. And so this is true history, a true recording of what really happened, a telling of real events, not uh, some fairy tale. But apart from that, we need to recognize that the pinnacle of the sovereign purpose of God Almighty would be accomplished through the common events transpiring among men. You notice that the passage doesn't start with something miraculous. But it's just something common. This is just historical narrative. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You may say, 4,000 years or, 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 or more of anticipation of suspense for the coming of this one? And this is the way that the Holy Spirit would communicate it to us? Introducing a man, Caesar Augustus, a world ruler, a leader? The pinnacle of the sovereign purpose of God Almighty would be accomplished through the common events transpiring among men. One thing that I want you to note, and this is kind of high-level view of this passage we will see the sovereign hand of God working 
but in two distinctly different ways. Number one, we see the sovereign hand of God working providentially, providentially. And let me give you my best definition of that. His providential working highlights his divine accomplishment through the normal affairs of mankind. That God is providentially working his plan through the normal events, the normal affairs of mankind. So some in this narrative maybe were there and saying, ah, Caesar said to go, we better go. We need to go be census to be registered. We'll do that. Having no idea that God, while Caesar ruled, God overruled. That God was bringing about his purposes. Why? Because remember what the prophet Micah said, but you, Bethlehem, out of you shall come a ruler. God was going to orchestrate events providentially to bring about the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, in that little town of Bethlehem. Providential working. But secondly, he works miraculously. And we don't want to discount this. Our God can do miracles. Can he not? He is supernatural. We look at the natural affairs of men, and at times we may not see it, but we ought to believe it. God is working. But there are times where God will do things that are supernatural, like sending angels from heaven. That's a supernatural event. And so God's supernatural working, if I could put somewhat of a definition, or God's miraculous working, his divine accomplishment through the supernatural display of God's power and intervention. So on the one hand, he's working providentially, highlighting his divine accomplishment through the normal affairs of mankind. On the other hand, he's working miraculously, his divine accomplishment through the supernatural display of God's power and intervention. And by that, I'm speaking of the angels coming from heaven. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. So God is at work. God is accomplishing his purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 would say this. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the sovereign God is overruling Yes, we see world leaders. Yes, we see political leaders. We have our own kings, governing authorities. But do you see, do you believe that there is one who overrules the rulers? Who's bringing about his purposes? I will accomplish all my purpose. God is working. The enemies of God, dear friend, do not frustrate the decrees of God. They execute them. The friends of God may not resist the plans of God, nor see the plan of God, but they fulfill them. This is the reality. Our God is sovereignly at work, both providentially and miraculously, to bring about his purposes. Don't forget what the Proverbs say, the king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Oh, friends, we can fret. We can fret, can we not? when we see what's going on around us. And from a human perspective, it is worrisome, the things that are going on. But our God overrules those who rule. He's bringing about his purposes. He will bring it to pass. The king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. 
he turns it wherever he will. Remember that scene in Acts chapter 4? Peter is recounting some of what has gone on there. And listen to these words in Acts chapter 4 as we think about the sovereignty of God. The overruling, overworking, sovereign God accomplishing his purposes. Listen to what Peter said. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, this is a prayer by the way, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. This is almost exactly what's stated in Psalm chapter 2, that the heathen, the nations would gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. But listen to the way Peter finishes it. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purposes had determined before to be done. Mankind thought that day at Calvary that they were executing God's son and that they did. But what they did not realize is that they were also executing God's plan. This was God's plan. That the sinless Savior would die on my behalf, on your behalf. Daniel would say, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Those were Nebuchadnezzar's words, by the way, well reiterated from his vision, his dream. And so, as Caesar ruled, God overruled. Listen to these words of this writer. I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. God is working. And so we're introduced to this man, this ruler, Caesar Augustus, ruler of the great Roman Empire for about 40 years, from 27 BC to 14 AD. He was uh, he's called the first Roman emperor and one of the longest reigning Roman emperors. He was the grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, After the assassination of great uncle Julius, this man, Gaius Octavius, later to be known Caesar Augustus, was thrust into a massive power struggle and political unrest. But through military skill, political alliance, and unmatched determination, he eventually came out on top as the first emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus dramatically expanded the Roman Empire. Countries like Egypt, parts of Africa, parts of Hispania, Spain, Portugal, and so forth, enlarging his kingdom. Caesar Augustus laid the foundations for the Pax Romana. I'm no historian, but as I understand, the Roman peace, 200 years of relative peace to a land that had been wrought with violence. Caesar, a title like Pharaoh, king, or emperor. Note that this is not his name. But this is his title. Caesar is a title like Pharaoh, king, or emperor. And Augustus is not his name, but it's an adjective. An adjective that describes his title. The word Augustus means majestic, revered, venerable, or could be translated the illustrious one. A title given to him by the Roman Senate. Caesar Augustus did bring a measure of peace and stability and was not only given the title Caesar Augustus or majestic revered emperor, but because of his great power, 
an effect on civilization, he was also given the title Savior of the World. Savior of the World. Think about this. Beyond his death, Caesar Augustus was deified. He was given divine status by the Roman world, as many of the Caesars were. This is this man. Here he is, large and in charge, commanding the inhabited world, calling all men to be registered, enrolled. For what purpose? Why would Caesar, why was he calling in the masses to enroll them, to register them, to census them? For this reason, and I think the King James jumps to this conclusion, for taxation. He would take from the people whatever he could get. Keep that in mind. Taxation to bolster and supply his kingdom, to strengthen his forces, to fund his great projects. Think about this incredible contrast for a moment. Here in the story, we're given an introduction for the first time to a man named Caesar Augustus. But we're also given an introduction for the first time, at least in person, to a man called the Christ. While Caesar, the crowned king, commanded the world from on high, Christ, the true king, came down into the very lowest part of the world. Caesar demanded to know each person under his empire for his own good, to bolster his kingdom. But Christ, the true king, invites you to know him for your own good. Caesar demanded... I'm sorry, Caesar wanted to take everything he could from mankind for his own physical and political enrichment. But Christ, the true king, wants to give you everything you need for your own spiritual enrichment. Caesar would be man become God. Christ was God become man. Caesar was a political savior of the world. Christ would be the spiritual and eternal savior of the world. Caesar relished in his glory and power, but the scripture tells us that Christ humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. Caesar brought swift death to his enemies. He was militarily skilled and powerful, but Christ died for his enemies. Imagine the insult some 33 years later at Calvary. Behold your king, Pilate would say. You remember what they said? We have no king but Caesar. What an insult. What an insult to the sovereign God who had brought the Savior into the world. The one who would redeem the world while Caesar did what he could to take from mankind in taxation, to enrich himself, to bolster his kingdom, the Son of God came to give to mankind all that they need for life and godliness. What a contrast. In this one act, in this one providential act of God, God did far more for mankind than men's politics could ever do. Isn't that true? In this one act, God's providence would do far greater for mankind than men's politics would ever do. Oh, friends, never look to man's politics for what can only be found in God's providence. Men look to the political establishment for things like peace, 
prosperity and protection, don't they? We want peace. Give us peace. We want protection. Secure our borders and all the rest of it. Defend us militarily. I'm not necessarily downing these things, but think about it. We want prosperity. Make the economy good. Give us prosperity. It was no different in that day. But God would send the one who would give true peace, true protection, true prosperity. The Lord Jesus would say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. In true protection, he would say, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That, my friend, is true protection. And what about prosperity? Listen to the words of Paul. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. That's true wealth. Spiritual enrichment, eternal enrichment, blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ for those that know him. All friends, stop looking to man's politics for what can never be found anywhere other than in God's providence. He brought about the Savior of the world to give to you what your heart longs for. Come to Him. Come to the Savior. There are many other things in that regard. The psalmist reminds us not to put trust in princes, but to trust in the Lord. The psalmist reminds us uh, that it is better to trust in the Lord to put co- than to put confidence in man. Look to the Lord. So here was the earthly king coming into this world to know mankind fully by becoming one of us and in that to give us that which we could never earn or attain everlasting life. That's the setting of this story here as we consider it this morning. And we're introduced to two lowly people, Joseph and Mary, from a lowly nation into a lowly town in a lowly stable and indeed a helpless babe laid in a lowly manger. Could the King of Kings, the Son of God, get any lower than this? It says in verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Why bring in to the world the Savior in such a manner? Why such humility? Why bring the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Redeemer, the Savior of mankind into the world in such a humble way? Have you ever considered that? Why? I suppose there are various answers that we could give to this. But many people, and to their credit, they, they jump to the conclusion that the humility of the Savior is an example to us. And indeed it is an example to us. I know why he came in such a way. He came in a humble way to be an example for us. The word of God supports this. Philippians 2 and verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it's all about his humility. So that is true. First Peter 2.21 says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. This is true. An example he was showing us how to be great in the eyes of God by becoming the least 
an example showing us how to place oneself fully into the hands of God and trusting God fully for the end result. Imagine this. The Son of God, clothed in flesh as a baby, you could be no more helpless than this, but he showed us how to place ourselves in the hands of God and fully trust him. God would work out the details. God would bring it about. So this is true. An example of usefulness for God, no doubt about it. Not my will, but your will be done, the Lord Jesus would say. He was an example. But I want to point this out. When we consider the why of his humiliation, we can affirm that it had something to do with providing an example for mankind. But it does go much deeper than this. The purpose was first and foremost, not exemplification, but salvation. First and foremost, primarily his coming to this earth in such a way, in such humility, was not exemplification to be an example that wasn't primary, but it was salvation. Notice what the angels say when they introduce him. And this is jumping ahead just a little bit. But it says this in verse 11. The angels pronounce, There is born to you this day in the city of David a good example. Is that what your Bible says? Here is born to you in the city of David a good leader. Is that what your Bible says? Here is born to you this day in the city of David a good teacher. We need good teachers, don't we, friends? I hope your Bible doesn't say that. My Bible says... For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Primary in the purposes of God in humiliating his son in such a way was your salvation. He is an example to follow. But I'm afraid that so much of the world looks to him and if they disregard him, they disregard him. But some of the most challenging people are those that honor him to a certain extent. They look and say, oh, I love the way that he loved the poor. I love the way that he mixed in with, with, with the outcasts. I love the way that he did good deeds. I love the way that he had a pure heart. I love that about Jesus. A good example. But that's not his primary purpose. An example, though he was, he came to be your savior. You and I needed a savior. Think about this for one minute. And I'm going to turn you from Luke chapter 2 because this was so powerful as the Lord showed this to me. Go to John chapter 13. Not first exemplification, but primarily or primary to that salvation. I'm not saying he's not an example to follow. He is. And certainly for the Christian, he is. But his primary purpose was to be a savior. John chapter 13, we're introduced to a scene in the life of the Lord Jesus that would rival any scene of humility throughout his whole life. Perhaps you could say that Calvary was the ultimate humiliation, and it was. But as far as the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he did many humble things. Many humble things. But John 13 introduces us to a scene, and many of you know, as the Lord Jesus the king of kings would bow the knee and begin to wash his disciples' feet, washing their feet. What a scene of humility. 
This is who he was. This is the way he came, a scene of humility. So listen to what the Lord Jesus says in John 13 and verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So here it is. You say, I've got it. The reason why the Lord Jesus put himself down in that humble place, washing the feet of his disciples, he tells us to give them an example that you should do this for one another. And you would be right in saying that, partially. Prior to John 13 and verse 14 is John 13 and verse 8. Listen to these words. Peter said to Jesus, You, Lord, shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This is salvation. This is the sanctification that only God could provide to mankind. Was he performing an example? Yes, he was. But primary to that, the washing of the disciples' feet was for them to understand that if God doesn't wash me, I've got no part with him. I'm wicked. I'm filled with sin, iniquity. I have no standing in the presence of God. So we thank God that he's given us an example to follow. But don't miss the fact that his primary purpose was to be your savior. Your savior. Exemplification, yes, but primary to that salvation. The doctors of our world may ride around in fancy cars, cruise around in fancy yachts, live in fancy mansions, but when they're performing life-saving procedures, you will not find them in their yachts or mansions, but you'll find them in the operating room. Bloody, sweaty, in common shoes, in cheap clothing. The same is true of our great physician. He came to where we are. He engaged mankind on the lowest level. There could be no other way. He came to save you, to wash you, to cleanse you. Don't miss this. And of course, this is true love, isn't it, friends? Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. We're going to move on as quickly as we can. We're introduced uh, in verse 8 to another scene. It's happening at the same time, it seems, as the delivery back to Luke chapter 2. And we will wrap this up very quickly. We're introduced to the scene of the shepherds and this angelic announcement. So we just considered the Savior sent, by the way. Sorry for not referring to that. Hopefully you saw the visual up there. Verses 1 to 7, the Savior has been sent in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. By the way, Dave mentioned this this morning, but this phrase is extremely powerful and pointed because there was no room for them in the inn. Here was the Savior lying in some measure of filth, in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. It's something that you put the animals' food in for them to eat out of. That's the best that Mary had to offer. In fact, that's the best that the world had to offer. And in many senses, 
The situation remains the same, doesn't it? It's as if there's a no vacancy sign hanging on planet Earth. We've got no room for you, Lord. No room for you. We love your blessings, but we don't love you, the blesser. We want your goodness, but we don't want your son. There's no vacancy here. It has never been a matter of the condition of the heart of man. The Lord Jesus came into filth. He'll clean you. But do you have room for him? Will you allow him in? Will you open your heart and push all of those other things out and say, Lord, come in, cleanse me, save me? This is the question. And so there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds, I just want to tell you very quickly as we move through this, and we will wrap this up quickly. We're introduced to shepherds. I tell you, the sovereign God does incredible work through lowly men, doesn't he? The sovereign God does incredible work through the smallest and weakest of vessels. God used Moses' rod to defeat the armies of Egypt. Think about this. The armies of Egypt were defeated by one man and his wooden stick. God used David's sling to defeat Goliath in that small stone. God used Gideon's 300 men to defeat the 30,000 Midianites. God used the jawbone of a donkey to slay a 1,000 Philistines. God used trumpets and shouts to bring down those imposing walls at Jericho. God used five loaves and two fish to feed the multitudes. Our God uses little things. In fact... It's not just that he can do that, but this is the way he chooses to operate. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of this. You see your calling, brethren, that not not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble according to the flesh have been called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to bring to nothing the things that are wise or to bring to nothing the wise. Why would he do this? Why would he use such lowly people. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 29. Let me read verse 28. The base things of the world, the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. When we see the sovereign hand of God, accompanied by the humble obedience of man, God's glory shines. Things can get all out of whack really quickly, can't they? Because we are so prideful. We want to be something. We want to say we're something. We want to maybe say, God, look at, I've got power. I've got influence. But, but that's not the way the Lord works. These shepherds were despised. They were low-class, blue-collar workers doing a job that youth could do. They were distrusted. They were generally untrustworthy men. Not saying these specific ones were, but this is the way they were viewed. As one writer said, shepherds roamed 
with their flocks seeking green pasture and were known for having problems differentiating between what is mine and what is thine. They were distrusted. They were deprived, deprived of all their civil rights. They could not fulfill judicial offices or be admitted in court as witnesses. They were dirty. They were generally rough, hands-on laborers with smelly sheep, and they were disconnected. They lived out in the fields, disconnected from society. Not Caesar's. But shepherds God would use. Well, what, what kind of logic is this, Lord? Shepherds? These are the outcasts of society. Why would you do this? That no flesh would glory in my presence. Glory corrupts us. Pride corrupts us. But he is the God of glory. He is the sovereign creator that no flesh should glory in my... When the, when the sovereign hand of God is accompanied by the humble obedience of man, the glory of the Lord shines. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. I don't know, but I wonder if the presence of God came to the Caesars of that day, Would his glory shine in such a way? This is a bit hypothetical, I know. But the point is, is that the Caesars of the world, they had their glory. They had their pride. They were high and lifted up. But when the sovereign hand of God brings about his purposes through the humble obedience of men and women, his glory shines. His glory shines. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Let me tell you of a story very quickly. Very quickly. Listen to this. One Sunday morning, January 1850, in a small town in England, a 15-year-old young man's path to church was diverted. Diverted down a side street due to the snowstorm. For shelter, he ducked into the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. The audience was barely in the double digits. Oh, we love our big churches. But this day, the audience was barely in the double digits as the snow kept many away. So bad was the snowstorm that the minister himself didn't even show up that day. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. This young man, in his own words, made this comment regarding that sermon. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And this young man said, There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sing with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That young man's name, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The the one who would later be known as the Prince of Preachers. One preacher said, He was a preacher to the megachurch before we knew what the megachurch was or knew how to desire it. He preached to thousands, the prince of preacher, but he was saved. He was saved in this little chapel, barely double digits by his own testimony. It's actually interesting. If you want to look up 
The church still exists. I don't think it's a little Methodist church anymore. It's called Artillery Street Evangelical Church. And you can read on their website uh, their one claim to fame. They said, nothing special about us. We've got one claim to fame. This is where Charles Spurgeon was born again. God uses the little things, doesn't he? God uses the lowly. God would use these shepherds to herald his message. Why not use the, the angels? The angels could have told more than just the shepherds. Why not? I may not have all the answers to that, but I do know this. God uses lowly men. God uses humble men to accomplish his purposes in order that his glory may shine. And the Lord Jesus himself, yes, the son of God, but was the ultimate example of this because the son of God became the son of man. He subjected himself, put himself veiled in flesh in such a way And by his own admission, I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father in heaven. The Lord Jesus, as he navigated this earth, he was constantly in contact with headquarters as the Son of Man. He was God, but in his state as the Son of Man, he subjected himself to the will of the Father. Remember those words in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. In that, he put himself fully into the hands of God Almighty with full trust, full belief that God would bring about his purposes. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? To put myself into the hands of God in such a way. Lowly men in a lowly occupation, in a lowly town, at a time of day where they would not even be seen due to the darkness of night, It is there that the glory of the Lord shines. And we will close one final thought. And this is on a very practical note. The Lord spoke to me very severely in this regard. After the shepherds saw him, after they heard the Lord spoken, they went and saw him. I wanted to go into that. We don't have time. They then went out and shared him. Dave reminded us of that this morning. We have the opportunity to share the shepherd. Hey, if you have no desire to share the Savior... Maybe it's because you're not seeing him. This is the point. Maybe you need to get into God's word and see him and allow God to give you the desire to share him. But the last thing is this. It says this in verse 19 of Luke 2, and thank you for your patience. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I have to share this because the Lord spoke to me so heavily in this regard. What we have in Luke chapter 2 is God doing an incredible work through lowly Mary. If there was anyone in history that could gloat in what God had done through them, it would be Mary. Who of you can can say, God used me to bring his son into the world? Oh, we love to talk about the things that God has done through us. Don't confuse these two things. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That was the message to the shepherds. The Savior was for them, but the Savior was through Mary. The shepherds shouted it. They shared it. They spoke it. But Mary remained silent. Silent. The point is this. When God does a work through you, 
stay silent. When God does a mighty work for you, such as Calvary, oh, you're free to share it. Shout it. Speak it to everyone you know. Tell the world about it. We have a major, major problem within us. The desire for glory. Our pride. Oh, we love to tell people about what God has done through us. So much so that we'll we'll put it on social media for the world to see. Look at what God did through me. None could make a claim like Mary could claim. The Son of God came through her. This was the the ultimate work of God. But she stayed quiet. She stayed quiet when God does a work through you, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, don't do your charitable deeds to be seen by men. Don't do your righteousness so that men could see it. You'll have your reward. You want a reward from men? You'll get it. When God works through you, shh. When God works for you, shout it. Share it. Speak it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful message of the incarnation of your son. We see here your hand working in such a mighty and powerful way. And yet in some senses, O God, we see just the basics of mankind being carried out. We thank you for your providential working in that day, indeed, and in our day as well. We give you thanks for it. We commit the day to you. Ask that you would speak to us by your word. Change us for your glory. We don't want to just hear your word, O God. Help us, we pray, to be doers of it. In Jesus' name.